Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Wow, wow, wow. What an episode. We just talked to Tim Wan, who is the CEO of OKCoin. It's very interesting because for the first half of the episode, we didn't talk about OKCoin, which at one point in 2016 and 2017 was the largest exchange in the world, processing over 16,000 Bitcoin per month. We didn't talk about that in the beginning. We talked about how Tim was a bank examiner for the FDIC for three years, then actually worked as an examining manager for the Federal Reserve for nine years, worked as an AML officer for Visa for another five years, and then jumped in to be the chief compliance officer at BitPay and eventually the CEO of OKCoin. I have to admit, I've never spoken to or seen someone who's worked for so many government agencies and decided to say, hey, we need to do this crypto thing and then jump into Bitcoin, jump into crypto. It's like as if President Trump decided to work for a Bitcoin company. That's that's how I see it. And this was such a great episode because he provided so much insight into what is going on on the other side of the table and in other camps. We talked about financial literacy and we talked about why he thinks that money is owned by governments their own money is owned by governments. And that was a very polarizing topic. We talked about that. Talked about the difference between OKCoin and OKX. We talked about what it was like working for the government in 2008. And if he thinks that there is good clarity in the regulatory world, the regulatory landscape right now. And then we really like asked some tough questions on what he thinks the government's role in money and finances. This was such a fantastic episode. Enjoy it, and I'll talk to you guys right after the ads. Talk to you in a second. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees, and I don't like that. So check it out, bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free 
card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. You're a super loyal podcast listener and you've been listening to my show for a while. So you know that Bitpanda, which is a company based out of Austria, has been working with me for a few months now. And I'm a huge fan of Vienna and I'm a huge fan of Bitpanda. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. Their core product is an easy to use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker. They have over a million users, so you know they really care about their customers. What's amazing about Bitpanda is really how easy it is to set up an account and get going. They recently launched their own educational platform, and this is super cool, so check it out. Take a listen for a second, where you can learn all about Bitcoin and more. It's free, regularly updated, and you can earn five euro for free when you complete the quiz. So make sure you check it out, bitpanda.com. They are a big sponsor of ours, and please give them some love because they love me. Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there, like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo, our newest sponsor of Untold Stories. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content, and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really, really like. It's fast and simple, and it's the first crypto-powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google app stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm going to be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. Pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. I have today the CEO of OKCoin, Tim Bion. And up until like this second, I was very excited to interview him, but now he just called me a budding journalist, and I don't know how I feel. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you for having me. So, no, I'm just joking about that. I I'll take that as a compliment. Although I I do say that this show is not a you know it's not we're not news we're not we don't break news or it's not a journalism show. But I I do appreciate that you put me in that category. Um, and I have to be I have to be honest with you. I I'm very much looking forward to the show. OK Coin has a huge history. In, in the Bitcoin space and on the crypto space, having been founded in, in 2013. Most people don't realize that. But Tim, I have to say, doing my research of you, you have a very interesting history. And I'm, I'm intrigued, you know, that you kind of jumped into crypto. And so I want to read your history, you know, like where you worked and what you did prior. And, and I'm curious, and I'm going to ask you some questions on it. But um, 
I think it's exciting when we have someone as seasoned as you in the finance space jump in and 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 jump in in the in the crypto space. I think it's a very good sign of the health of our space. And you're not the first person that I spoke to that's an executive at a crypto company. Um, that came from, you know, even working for the government. You know, I've interviewed people on this show that have worked for the government before, worked for banks, um, and just, you know, they come to work with a smile on their face every day. Um, and so just to read your, your history back a little bit, you, you for, for three years, you were an assistant bank examiner for the FDIC, the Federal Deposit um, Insurance Company. Is a company or corporation? Corporation. Corporation. But it's not really a corporation. It's it's a, no, okay. it's a federal agency. And then you you were an examining manager at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. You did nine years. Uh you then jumped into into corporate. You worked at Visa for five years. You were an AML officer and head of global settlement credit settlement risk. And then you had your first foray in 2014. And 2014 was a little bit I'm gonna circle this. I'm gonna go back to this because 2014 to jump into crypto was heavy bear market, like heavy, 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 very heavy bear market. So I want to ask you about that in a second. So then you worked as chief compliance officer at BitPay, and then you jumped into OKLink. You were the chief risk officer, and you joined the OK, OK Group. You were the uh, uh, chief revenue officer, head of government relations, which is very interesting, actually. I want to ask you which governments. And then uh, you know, you'd be the CEO of OKCoin for, for uh, almost two years now. So congratulations. Um, but the first question I have for you is, what do you what do you think of money? Uh, what do you think of the government's role of money? And not from like what you've learned in college or university, but just by working for so many years for various government agencies, give us some insight into what you think and how things are are kind of done. You know, from from the other side. That's a a huge question that you want to start off with, and I'm glad to uh, take it. First of all, money is owned by governments. So I think what we see today is actually an explosion of topics, discussions, vetting, uh, testimonies with the Facebook Libra. And I think the crux of what's happening is that governments control money. Governments make their own money. For thousands of years. For thousands of years. Exactly. Like forever. Yes. Okay. Yes. And for the first time, when you have a $500 billion public company like Facebook that want to make and control their own money, I think governments have woken up and said, no, 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 no. Only countries make money. Only sovereign nations make money. And therefore, uh, you know, money is... It, maybe you and I, uh, we we ponder and think about what the heck We do. Is we money. theorize. We, most of, yeah. Correct. But most of uh, Main Street, they don't really think about money other than do I have money enough to spend, uh, have a good time, make a living, you know, pay tuition for kids. Uh, So, you know, you and I ponder about money and it's actually controlled by the government. It keeps the society, uh, you know, in shape. We like to call it financial stability in the in the Federal Reserve world. Uh, but it's really a way to control and uh, I think give um, uh, give life to the public, but it's really controlled by the government. You touched on something interesting, uh, financial literacy. You're right. Most people don't think about it. I mean, even before I got into Bitcoin, I never really thought about the specifics about, 
you know, what's going on uh, with the levers of our financial system. Most people don't think about it. Um, do you think that crypto has made America and the rest of the world, but kind of let's break up the question with, and then when I ask you questions going forward, if possible, try to give me two answers, like, because America and the rest of the world are very different. So it's almost like two different answers. So for the sake of this conversation, do you think that crypto, and we'll use the term crypto uh, interchangeably here, do you think crypto has awoken people to financial literacy? And do you think that crypto has woken people in the rest of the world to financial literacy? Absolutely. Uh, you know, as part of the Federal Reserve, their mission is to promote safety and soundness, financial stability, but they actually spend a lot of effort in educating the public about uh, you know, the banking system, interest rates, what exactly does APR mean? How is it different from simple interests? Um, and therefore, I think Bitcoin has taken financial literacy to a, a new level, and it's a healthy level. Not many people may agree or want Bitcoin, but it's definitely going to let them investigate and learn more about what money is, what Bitcoin is. And I think it's a huge positive. I think um, right before Bitcoin, the movement towards, um, you know, uh, uh, innovative uh, financial companies like Lending Club, you know, not much uh, to talk about Lending Club these days, but uh, when Lending Club came to the scene, it allowed individuals to become investors as well as uh, borrowers, right? Main Street, uh, the, the vast public knew about borrowing, but not much of Main Street knew about investing in such a way that you could actually be the bank. And so Lending Club, I thought, was an exciting avenue for financial literacy because it allowed you to learn a whole new uh, spectrum of diversifying different credit grades, you know, risk return trade-offs. You could make your own portfolio with as little as $500. And I thought that was amazing. But now comes along Bitcoin and the entire crypto world, and that's taking it to a new level. So I think it's an absolute uh, positive for society to learn more about finance. You know, that's, a, that's very interesting. Well, I'll let you finish before I ask my question. Sorry. Uh, you, you asked about, you know, globally. I think, um, it, you know, uh, my background is uh, I'm Korean. And I think um, Asian uh, countries or Asian cultures tend to talk about money a little more freely, right? Where we're probably even rude at the dinner table where we ask someone, how much do you make? Uh, real bluntly. But it's it's a little more ingrained, I think, outside of the U.S. to talk about money, to talk about investments, which are kind of pretty personal. But I think outside of the U.S., that's why Bitcoin has taken off a little more, because I think the, it's a little more natural to talk about money, to talk about investments, to learn from others. And it's not such a uh, a real deep personal issue. That's a very good point because my uh, really good friend just came to visit and him and his new bride um, came to visit us here this weekend. And she just moved here from Australia. Um, first time in America, they get, you know, they meet, they get married a few months later. 
And she she felt and her what she was telling me was she said, I don't know, it's so weird in Australia. We're very upfront and blunt, exactly what you said about money and politics, especially politics. But what you do, how you do it, how much you make, very specific politics, especially in places, she said, where they have parliamentary republics, where there's a lot more parties and a lot more candidates. But in America, she was almost told that politics and money is not it's not something you talk about on the dinner table. And I wasn't really planning on jumping into this, but I'm curious to your thoughts on this subject um, because you, you know, for better or for worse, you've been working in, in money. For the, we, you know. we talk about politics. You do? Yes. Uh, we, we, in the U.S., we talk about politics. I think that's the one common denominator. Every culture uh, talks about politics. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think it's a little easier. Financial literacy or finance is tougher, but it's so important of our social lives. So, uh, you know, I love new ways for people to learn more about our finance, our financial system, banking system. And I think it's uh, Bitcoin will help us uh, get stronger in terms of financial literacy. I think you're right. From from 1991 to 2009, you worked in in the in the government sector of, of finance and with a brief with a brief stint at a bank. Were there any during those 20 years, were there un, any other um exciting uh, financial technologies that came out that, that you were as excited as in that you were now in Bitcoin, that you are now in Bitcoin. And I mean, I guess the answer is no, because you freaking became the CEO of one of the largest <laughs> crypto companies in the world. You know, uh, what I love about my history uh, and it was not by my, you know, design or genius or, you know, I'm really just an average guy, but uh, I feel like I was at the right place, right time, and obviously worked hard to learn the disciplines of each uh, role that I was in. So as a regulator, you know, it's a, it's a very tough job. Uh, a regulator will always get criticized, right? It, you're always uh, judged. Um, everything is clear in hindsight. Uh, but at the at the heat of the moment, whether it's a great financial recession, whether it's the Asian flu, whether it's, uh, you know, when I graduated in 1991, we had the SNL crisis. And, uh, you know, people forget, but thousands of banks went under. And so this was uh, the know, Asian currency un- crisis, so- right? Asian currency was more in 1998, uh, Asian flu, uh, Russian ruble crisis. Um, But uh, 1991, we had all the SNL, savings and loans, go under. And so, uh, you know, it really just gave me the tools to, uh, you know, exercise prudence, uh, practice risk management, not only for uh, banking institutions, but even uh, a crypto company. You know, not every day is going to be a great uh, trading day or prices are going to go up. Prices also go down. And so, uh, you know, it really taught me to look uh, ahead to the long run and really plan accordingly. So I'm, I'm a pretty conservative guy. Uh, but these tools have led me to you know, joining BitPay, which was amazing, and then finally joining OK 
Bitcoin and OK Group. Uh, and so it really provided a, a host of different views. And so I'm just glad to be uh, learning every day on the job, believe yeah. it or not. No, I agree. And I, sh- and I should say that um, I've been a customer of BitPay since around 2013, 2014. And they're one of our sponsors here at, at Untold Stories. I'm a big fan of Stephen and Tony, and, and I've been friends with them for many years. Um, and I know that BitPay got a lot of flack over the course, over the years. And I want to I want to talk to you about this because you were the chief compliance officer and, and then and the company continued to grow. But over the years, as a crypto company grows, they have to uh, negotiate very difficult waters to appease their customers of the crypto space, which includes, you know, the crypto anarchists, the libertarians, but also continue to exist and operate and make money. And in order to do that, you have to make, you know, government regulatory bodies extremely comfortable and extremely happy. And I guess you being a regulator for 20 years definitely uh, helped with that and, and taught with that. But how do you how do you tow that line? Can you think of any uh, times where you said to yourself, how do I now, this is a situation where I have to keep both sides happy and I don't know how to do that. But then you figured it out. Can you think of any scenarios where that happened? You know, um, uh, BitPay is a money service business, a defined term in the U.S. Uh, BitPay is required to register with FinCEN, a department of the treasury. And after you register, which is very easy to do, then comes the hard part. As a money service business in the U.S., what it really does is allow the government to come in and examine you and audit you, basically. And See, uh, I didn't the- know that. That's why I went to jail. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what... Uh, uh, you know, that's the real lever that the government has on crypto businesses. I tell my friends, my coworkers, if you're in the crypto business, believe it or not, you're in the compliance business because you need to really carefully study those requirements. And the first requirement is if you meet the definition of a, a money service business because you uh, facilitate activities that are related to convertible virtual currency, that's a defined term made by FinCEN, then you must register. Registration takes literally five minutes over the internet. But after that, you have a huge responsibility to abide by U.S. laws, including uh, the Bank Secrecy Act, all the anti-money laundering laws. Uh, file suspicious then, activity reports. You exactly. have to, um, you have to, you know, have a certain AML program. You have to have a trained compliance officer, not me sitting in my parents' basement, um, which is what I, what happened. Um, you need, yeah, it's it's That's compliance right. needs to be taken seriously, and I think up until 2014, we didn't. That's right. That's right. Um, you know the the. Up to 2014, the industry was budding uh, and getting stronger. And right at about that time, uh, BitPay specifically, I think, got their Series A $20 million raise. And therefore, uh, the timing, once again, was perfect for BitPay to look for a chief compliance officer. 
And uh, that's how I got introduced to BitPay and joined BitPay in 2014, June 1st. And so, uh, you know, uh, all my experience right prior to that, I was the anti-money laundering officer for Visa uh, in Foster City. And so BitPay wanted to mimic the acquiring model, basically signing up merchants to accept Bitcoin as a form of payment, right? That's what Visa does on the on the acquiring side versus passing out billions of uh, Visa cards on the issuing side. So that's the whole Visa model, uh, except the acquiring side is what BitPay wanted to mimic and grow the ecosystem that way by enabling customers to use uh, Bitcoin as a form of payment. So, uh, you know, it just all lined up perfectly. And uh, I took uh, that opportunity to join an excellent company and ride the crypto wave at, as it was becoming a little more mainstream. And uh, one of the first opportunities was to be examined by FinCEN when they came knocking at BitPay. And so... Um, wow. So up until this point, BitPay and FinCEN didn't really have communications. You came on board and said, hey, we need to get this out of the way. We need to talk to them if we're going to continue growing and being involved in this space. Yeah. You know, uh, I think BitPay registered even before I got there, but the examination schedule occurs uh, one to every two years. So uh, it was the first exam that BitPay had when I was there. And so uh, myself and my great uh, compliance teammates kind of lived through that first experience. And it was rough. You know, we were educating uh, the uh, FinCEN delegates their exams to IRS field examiners. Uh, And so it was a little tough. They're used to, you know, a money service business in their eyes is more like the conventional Western unions, uh, money grams. Uh, check cashing uh, businesses that takes in cash uh, and gives something else uh, or takes in checks and gives something else or you're remitting uh, money, cash to someone else. That's the typical. All these legal terms. All these legal terms. Right. Well, it was interesting that remember when the whole ICO phase came out, everyone was using this term ICO and I was trying to say that's that's a legal term, initial you know, IPO is a legal, by saying ICO, by using the word offering, you're essentially, it's as if you're saying, I'm now a, you know, a security by implying those things. So if you you do these things and you say these words, then you have to follow the regulations um, in this country. I want to ask you, um, what was it like working for the Federal Reserve during the 2008 Great Recession? Wow, that's a great question. You know, uh, I was on an assignment. uh, I think it was uh, April 2008, 2000, uh, sorry, 2008, when uh, Bear Stearns went down. That evening, um, I was in New York and uh, I said, wow, this is this is history. You know, for such a uh, uh, landmark institution like Bear Stearns to get sold for, I don't know, a buck a share to JPMC, um, it it was uh, amazing as a a regulator, uh, but also 
it's it's just um I don't know crisis crises will happen again. You know what I learned from that is that the regulators are are prudent. They have their playbook. They're going to do risk assessments uh, before and plan the exam. Um, but I don't know. I think it's almost human nature or society nature that things are going to go off plank, and there's going to be you know. Uh, there's going to be greed. There's going to be aggressive risk taking, uh, you know, and it's going to happen again. And so at that time, I was like, oh, this is horrible. It's a it's a tragedy, uh, but it's part of history. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm able to live it and I'm able to see it closely. So uh, that was my reaction, a bit of uh, shock, uh, sadness but also reality that I said, you know what, it's going to happen again. But were you ever saying to yourself, this is a product of too loose of a regulatory market? Or were you saying to yourself, this is a product of uh, too tight of a regulatory market? Because, you know, they're, they're very different uh, socioeconomic beliefs on how many levers governments should have. And I'm not, I don't have an opinion one way or, or another for the sake of the show. I'm more curious of your thoughts and feelings because, you know, you have to understand you were there and you have stories, but also feelings that we'll never have. Yeah. You know, uh, my uh, uh, opinion, my philosophy is that it actually does not matter if uh, regulations oh, really? are too loose or too tight because for these um, uh, you know, anomaly or these uh, rare crises. Like it, black swan events. Yes. They, they kind of, it's dynamic. It's, you can't just tie it to one action. You know, you can't just say, oh, the regulation uh, got too loose or this regulation was launched and passed and got too tight. It's rarely that simple. What happens is that it feeds on many decisions that are made, not only by the government. You know, we, we blame the government or give government too much credit. It's also the businesses. And well, it's so an we extreme. Take, we take, uh, you know, risks. The, the whole uh, CDO market, collateralized debt obligations, and all the subprime loans, they were very sophisticated products. Right. Even it, it grew so sophisticated, even the people that put it together, the underwriters didn't know what they were selling. So it just feeds upon each other. And, you know, uh, down to even Main Street. And that's why it was so tough for the great financial recession. Main Street, you know, Bob and Jane uh, had, you know, three homes that they were investing in, in Stockton. Or even in Hawaii, you know, it, it got out of hand. It was almost like you were ridiculed, ridiculed if, you know, you had a job working in San Francisco, but you only had one house that you lived in. It's like, what's wrong with you? Everyone is buying three, four houses uh, in Riverside County, Stockton, Sacramento. Uh, it, it got out of hand. So it wasn't just one factor coming together, but many factors, and then which created the perfect storm, and it just uh, kind of self-imploded. That's very interesting that, you know, that's very interesting that you say that because I never heard that answer before, to be honest. And that's a very good response that's 
almost saying, I feel like what you're trying to say is we can't go to extremes. You know, when something like 2009 or 2008, whatever it was, happens and it'll happen again, these black swan events, a lot of people will automatically jump to the extreme solution. They'll say, oh my God, we have our regulations are so loose and look at all these people are getting away with all this. And now Bob and Alice on Main Street are getting screwed. And then you have people on the other side that say, oh no, our regulations are too tight. The bankers can get away with it. It's too tight. We don't understand it. And because we don't understand it, then it's too tight and no one can do business. And the payment company cabals like Visa and PayPal (laughs) can do whatever they want. So you have these two extremes and it's never a middle of the road thing. That's right. That's part of life. That's why it makes a great, uh, you know, conversations, uh, debates, uh, you know, I, I love it. Like the, one of the first questions, you know, I think politics is a global phenomenon. We all love to talk about it uh, because it, it changes, um, you know, every day. And so, uh, but that's us, that's society, you know? That is society. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product, and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like, um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees. And I don't like that. So check it out. Bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. And thanks for listening to Untold Stories. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them and we have been for a few months now. They love me and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And 
And I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin with their recently launched educational platform. It's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters, a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. So let's talk about OKCoin. Uh, in 2016, OKCoin was the largest Bitcoin exchange in the world with a volume of over 16 million Bitcoin per month. Hu huge number. Um, OKCoin has, uh, you know, uh, com is a parent company. There are a few sub companies now. A and it's safe to say that you, you, I don't know, but I'm assuming you have hundreds of employees around the world. It, it, it's safe to say that you're a very, very large company and that you're the CEO of, and you're based in San Francisco. Tell me about, um, you know, kind of moving into that role, coming from BitPay, moving into the role, and now uh, you have to navigate the waters, not just of your company, but you're almost representing the industry in offices of governments. What is that like? And do you feel that you have a little bit of an edge because you speak their same language? Um, yes, absolutely. And it, you know, again, I feel so fortunate to have these experiences. So uh, I first, maybe I could take it all the way back to. Uh, no Let's do it. No we got plenty of time. All right. November 2014, uh, I was uh, at BitPay in our San Francisco office. And along, uh, we get an email saying, uh, OK, Coin wants to visit our office. And uh, it's like uh, we were saying, you know, what for? What's the purpose? What's the agenda? Uh, we don't do anything with OKCoin. Um, but, you know, we said, uh, you know, yeah, let's do a, just a courtesy invite, have coffee. And so they came to our office. Lo and behold, it's Starshu, uh, the founder of OKCoin. 
uh, Jack Liu, who was the chief strategy officer back then for OKCoin. I remember Jack. Yeah. Yeah, I remember yeah, Jack, some, actually. Some, he just WhatsApp me. Yes. And uh, so we, we uh, sat uh, with OKCoin. Uh, they were developing um, a super wallet that could hold various um, tokens. And uh, at BitPay, you know, we... We, at the end of the day, there was no deal or strategic partnership, but uh, OKCoin also, as a, just a courtesy, wanted to meet all the startups in San Francisco because uh, at that time, OKCoin was banning U.S. Uh, residents, U.S. customers. So uh, while OKCoin was huge in um, uh, China, Asia, Hong Kong, uh, it was... Um, uh, they were banning U.S. customers, but they wanted to meet the ecosystem because uh, what's great about the Bitcoin ecosystem is we all kind of launched at around the same period, right? It wasn't like How one... How funny is that? Yeah, it's that a global so phenomenon. It wasn't that one country had uh, a right or a 30-year lead in making automobiles and all the countries did not. No, 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 no. This was a global phenomenon, and so it had a great uh, camaraderie. You know, everyone was open to learning. Uh, so it was a great. Are you time. using past tense on purpose? Are you using like was? <laughs> I'm just curious. No, no, I'm literally. I'm not sure if you do that on purpose or by mistake. That's why I'm maybe, asking. Because like, maybe you we know, could talk about that. I think we should because uh, although the ecosystem is still very friendly and tight, I think we have kind of lost that uh, camaraderie uh, because maybe because everyone is has gotten bigger uh, and everyone has uh, is really more you know uh, insular and focused on their priorities. But yeah, we have lost some of that. Um, uh, but anyway, I met uh, Starshoe in November 2014, and then uh, I remember him asking me a compliance-related question. Why in the U.S. do you have to get so many licenses? What's that all about? What did you say? Uh, well, <laughs> I explained to him that we both have a, in the U.S., we have both a federal requirement, MSB that I just talked about, as well as state requirements, MTLs, money transmittal licenses. And so that's why your job is not done after uh, fulfilling federal requirements. You still need to uh, abide and fulfill state requirements. So, you know, I didn't think it was a, you know excellent answer or a terrific answer. But anyway, uh, he remembered that. Oh, it's not Fast a satisfying forward. answer. <laughs> True, but it's the reality, right? Yes, uh, yes. So <laughs> fast forward 2016, um, you know, two years already uh, at BitPay. Um, I, I, it took me only two years or that long to figure out, you know what, uh, spending Bitcoins at your favorite merchants uh, is a great initiative, but it's going to take a while. Uh, it's going to take a long time. Uh, people actually are now uh, valuing their Bitcoins a little more. You know, you talked about the, uh, the rough uh, period of 2014 to 2016. But even with that, I think people were now realizing and having some remorse that their Bitcoins can appreciate a lot. And therefore, they want to hold. They don't want to spend it. Uh, they would rather spend their U.S. dollars. 
uh, on a gift card. When did you realize this? When did you realize this? And what were some of the socioeconomic effects of that? Because that's a big pivot, right? You go from BitPay, who's leading the leading the one of the companies that's leading the charge on consumer adoption, the longest and oldest running, you know, crypto company. Then you go into OKCoin, which focuses on a different type of customer. Yes. Uh, well, back then it was kind of the same customer because back then not many people had Bitcoin and they were uh, supporting the ecosystem, uh, wanting to support BitPay, using their BitPay uh, Bitcoins to buy, uh, you know, gift GYFT cards. Um, uh, but they also wanted to hold uh, uh, for the long term or uh, speculate in the short term. And where do they do that? They, they go through an exchange and they buy and sell and they hopefully make a profit uh, or they keep on accumulating for the long term as a long term investor. And so the exchange business uh, was actually a great business back then as well. Uh, even today, I think uh, many people uh, use Bitcoin as a uh, almost a uh, alternative asset class, and they invest in it, they sell it, they trade it, they arbitrage it. They uh, they have some uh, you know uh, uh, views of it, and they try and make a almost like a they they're a mini hedge fund themselves. So that's uh, what we're purely at today. I think it's a big focus uh, or big activity of the entire ecosystem. Obviously, I'm looking forward to what's going to come next. And I think uh, we have too many great minds, entrepreneurs in the ecosystem, and we are going to see good things. Uh, but, it, but it's not crystal clear yet. I think we're going to have to wait a little longer for huge innovations to come. You know, I like to use the analogy. I think we're in the early 90s of the Internet age. And folks, folks like uh, BitPay, OKCoin, Coinbase, Kraken, uh, you know, we, we think that we're the, the superstars right now. But you don't know. We could be the Netscape prodigies, CompuServes of the Internet age or AOL. Maybe, uh, you know, some people would really. Well, if you it. were the AOL, if you were the AOL Netscape and CompuServes of, of Bitcoin, first of all, that wouldn't be a bad thing. I mean, you look at like uh, you look at like Jeremy Lair, Mike Novogratz. I mean, these are people who were involved in the early. You look at um, and Andreessen. These are people that were involved in in the early days of the Internet like you as well. But how do you keep OKCoin at the top? How do you keep it a superpower? How do you make sure that you're not, for the sake of your shareholders and your customers and your investors, how do you make sure you're continuing to um, evolve? Because like I was saying earlier, you can't just, you know, like what you said, you you have to figure out what the industry wants. It's not like you can go look up and say, where is the demand? What do people want? You have to figure it out and then build it. So every time you build a new product, you're taking such an immense risk that people just don't want it or won't like it. That's right. So I think it obviously starts with uh, visionary leadership. And so, um, you know, OKCoin is, uh, has Starshoe at the top. Uh, he's going to work his hardest 
to make sure we're not the AOL of the world or the Netscape of the world. Uh, he's going to keep a fine uh, tune and eye towards what's coming up next, uh, diversify a little. You know, if it's uh, decentralized exchanges, we're going to be in decentralized exchanges. If it's going to be uh, another product, uh, you know, he's going to make sure that we're also uh, at least, um, you know, we have a investment side of the business. Uh, he's going to make a small investment and hopefully learn from great minds uh, that grow their business. And uh, perhaps we could do something uh, in the future as a partnership. So that's what I think great leaders do. And we have a lot of them in San Francisco as well. They collaborate. Right. And so, you know, Coinbase's model of selling tokens via Coinbase.com versus Coinbase Pro, which is a trading platform like OKCoin, uh, letting you bring in US dollars to trade. You know, I think uh, Coinbase is also going to look at what is on the forefront and make sure that they stay in the game and, and you know, morph and change and, uh, you know, hopefully become the Google of the world, right? Uh, and, and and stay uh, relevant and grow with the industry. I feel like during 2018, to, to go further what you said, maybe, I don't know the exact year, but maybe 2016 to 2018, I feel like those were the years where a lot of these larger companies um, took their separate products and created separate brands. And you gave the perfect example. Coinbase went to GDAX, and then they decided, hey, we need to keep using the the brand that we have. They called it Coinbase Pro. You have a lot of companies that did that um, for for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it was regulatory reasons. Uh, you look at Binance. Binance is doing that now, and it seems like they're, the, the, the two different models is, A, separate the companies that have different, you know, that do different things within the same brand. And then two, um, if they're operating different comp in countries in different jurisdictions, you know, the Bittrex is doing it. Binance is doing it, a lot of the exchanges are doing it. Um, you guys have done it. What is the relationship now between all these, not just with you, but maybe you have some insight with other companies. How do they work in a decentralized comp in decentralized companies um, all over the world, already decentralized. Do they operate better? And how is the relationship between OKCoin and OKX? What is the relationship? Because I don't even know if I know. Um, and how uh, how do these companies maintain, you know, these decentralized uh, divisions that operate interchangeably with each other? Sometimes they have to because the the jurisdictions require it, right? right? How do they right. do that? So, um, first of all, it's it's nothing new. Um, you know, uh, Bank of America. But it's new for the space. Correct. correct it's new for the correct. space. And I'll use a, a traditional example like Bank of America. They probably have 10,000 uh, subsidiaries and entities throughout the world. But we just think, you know, it's Bank of America and I can use my ATM here in San Francisco or in Chicago and it works seamlessly. Um, so with the crypto world, as we expand uh, territory wise, uh, which even uh, which OKCoin has done, right? We have launched our European uh, office uh, November 1st, 2018. We call it OKCoin Europe LTD. And it is seeking a, uh, a license locally from the Malta regulators under their uh, VFA, um, Virtual Financial Asset Law. So um, 
you know, that's the exciting part of my job where I get to meet uh, local regulators and central banks and see what their framework is all about. Uh, but what what's happening inside our houses, we're always evaluating whether we want to expand and how we want to expand. Is it safer, uh, better, more efficient to use one entity uh, to expand into another country or to set up a brand new office and localize it? so that we can most likely adhere to local laws, which are just being uh, rolled out. So while you read it on paper, you hear it from their mouths, you don't know how it's going to be interpreted. Uh, so there's, there's always risk there. And so that's why we have uh, come up, finally come to the U.S. Uh, we turned on our platform July 13th, 2018, and started to target U.S. customers. So that's been a learning process, right? Because before then we would ban U.S. customers. Now we welcome U.S. customers. So it's, it's a tough, uh, huge pivot, but that's what we wanna do and grow our U.S. business through our OKCoin USA Inc. entity in San Francisco uh, that, I'm, that I'm helping to lead the job. Uh, but we've got other entities that we're also going to kind of mimic this model. I feel like OKCoin okay, is, uh, we're like the, uh, maybe the, the Samsung of uh, the world. You know, maybe we were successful in our home country, but now we need to export our services and still sell great TVs or mobile phones in the U.S. and other parts of the world. So that's where OKCoin okay is coming from. Coinbase, Kraken, they're doing the same thing, but probably from they've been successful in the U.S. Now they're going to expand. They're going to set up shop in U.K. They're going to set up a shop in uh, Germany. And they are also expanding overseas. So that's it's It's a amazing phenomenon, but that's the entire ecosystem expanding. To answer your question about OKDX and OKCoin, we are sister companies. Uh, we share kind of... What does that term yeah. mean? I, I hear that now, and I don't know the definition of exactly. that word. So we have investors, uh, venture funds uh, that have invested in the OKCoin group, uh, and those funds own shares of OKEX entity and OKCoin uh, entity. So we are part of the same group, OK group, uh, but we are distinct entities with distinct uh, obligations under each territories that we operate. Uh, and that's how we have separated it. It's almost like Wells Fargo has Wells Fargo National Bank, NA, but it also has Wells Fargo Securities Investments. And so those are separate entities, but probably all in the same Wells Fargo uh, group. And so... Uh, hey, I want to... That's a... You, you just brought up a, an interesting thought that I just had. Do you think that we'd ever... And you're the perfect person to ask. Do you think we'd ever see in crypto a similar... If we continue... When, is it, when we continue to grow... Do you think we'd see a similar situation um, where governments come out and say, you know, similar to how 
they came out and said banks can no longer be both retail banks and investment banks. It has to be split. Do you think that could ever happen in, in our space? Of course it could happen. And it's because we live in a uh, society that we pick uh, uh, representatives to make laws. So it all depends if we have uh, representatives that uh, draft bills that we like or don't like. But if it gets passed, that's how it happens. It's uh, To me, it's as simple as that. So when, um, you know... Uh, when Facebook uh, had its uh, testimony about Libra, there was a congressman that drafted a bill that said, you know what, um, uh, tech companies should not be in the financial uh, institution space. It's like, you know, to me, that was uh, uh, unfounded or lacking a basis. But you know what? That's our representatives, and they will draft bills like that. Fortunately, it did not um, uh, come to pass, but you never know. Uh, in fact, uh, unfortunately, the opposite happens. Uh, in California, believe it or not, you, you don't need California's MTL, Money Transmittal License. And it's because the Californian regulators do not see Bitcoin as money. And the MTL license only covers money. And therefore, there is no license for Coinbase and OKCoin in California to, or anyone else to get the California MTL license, even though we need uh, you know, many other states' MTL licenses. So every state every is different. state is different and so there's a congressman uh in encino california that wants to support the crypto market uh congressman dabonet uh i'm not sure if he's uh still active in encino but he wanted to pass a state bill and have the legislature pass it so that it could come under the fold of the state uh regulators but it never passed uh, and therefore, it's no change today. We still do not have a license in California to obtain because it's out of scope. So we still operate in California. But technically, it's unlicensed, believe it or not. It's very interesting how that works. I always assume that you need all 50 licenses. And wouldn't you just get all 50 if you were getting the other 40 something to be safe? Because having those licenses is an asset in and of itself. But it's interesting that you say that some, I know that like Wyoming and some other states, Nevada have said like, you know, hey, you want to do crypto, you don't have to come here. Some states like Florida are a lot more open, but then you have other states like New York that are just completely different. Um, I was happy to see that. I was happy to see that very recently, I think as recently as a few months ago, the superintendent of the New York Department of Financial Services came out and she said that she's now, going to be taking another look at the bit license that Ben Lowski put together. So that was kind of cool, right? Do you think that would be better or worse if they, you know, um, if they relook at the bit license? Because while a lot of people complain about the bit license, would you agree that a bit license is better than no license because it's better to have clarity than non-clarity? That's a very tough question. Uh, especially since I've lived through uh, licensing and regulations for so long. You know, I think the world of uh, FinCEN 
who came out with a specific convertible virtual currency guidance in March of 2013. And that's still considered kind of the the principle or the Bible uh, today. If you want to read about what is covered under U.S. federal uh, laws for Bitcoin. And so that guidance has such a important place in my life history that I'll never forget when that guidance came out. That was the first federal guidance that came out published on a government U.S. government website that ever mentioned yes. Bitcoin, that one in 2013. Yeah. Okay. I'll never and forget. You know, um, it's even more amazing. What did the guidance say? It basically said that if you are in the business or activity of uh, facilitating convertible virtual currency, and see that last word they attached, it's a defined term, convertible virtual currency. Currency? currency. They see oh, it convertible. as a currency. That last word. So that's how they brought it into the broader definition of a money service business. If they defined it, Bitcoin is a convertible virtual good, right? CVG instead of CVC. I don't think it would have gone into the money service business realm. But Tim... And I don't mean to get too technical here, but I mean, you own a currency. Like if I have a dollar in my pocket, that dollar is in my pocket. If it's in my bank account, well, maybe own isn't a good word, but if it's in my bank account, it's in my bank account. The point, Bitcoin and crypto doesn't, there's no such thing as ownership, right? It's just unspent inputs and outputs going into spent inputs and outputs. One can make the case that you just hold the keys to spend these outputs, but you don't actually own a Bitcoin. A Bitcoin doesn't actually exist. Could we ever go and challenge that FinCEN guidance of calling it a currency? Because if we didn't, some people like that it is a currency, but others don't. You think that could ever be challenged? I think it will be challenged and there always be debates going back to the core of that. So, and that's healthy. It is healthy. And we're lucky that we can do it uh, in a professional, open, transparent manner in the U.S., you know. But uh, FinCEN, although it came out with that great guidance, uh, which was a trailblazing guidance in 2013, you got to imagine they spent at least a year studying it and investigating it and really taking time to write that uh, I, I don't remember how many pages. It's only like four to six pages, but it's loaded uh, and it, it was huge and it is still huge today. It's still entirely relevant today. So I, I would uh, recommend everyone to read it. I like to read it uh, at least once a year because it's so profound, but it changed the U.S. landscape for Bitcoins and crypto. And so they defined it as a currency. I will disagree with you, Charlie, because I don't see it as a currency today. I wish it will be a currency tomorrow or in my lifetime. I wish I can easily use it uh, anywhere in the world, but I just don't see it as currency today. I see it as a good. I see it as an alternative asset class. You're not disagreeing with me. If anything, we're we're in agreement. I don't 
I, I, I think we don't know what Bitcoin's going to be, or what crypto is going to be. I think we don't know what this is going to be. And I think it's unfair. And I think it's almost selfish to say that this is what this yeah. is. And so to, to, it, to in 2013, to throw it under a category and define it, I understand the need for definitions. Tim, you're preaching to the choir. I understand the need for clarity. You want to you wanna sell products to the consumers of America? You got to pay to play. You got to operate. You got to operate legally. Yeah. You got to do the right thing. And I'm, and I'm, and, and I'll be the first person to tell my listeners, I'll be the first person being someone who went through the criminal justice system that you want to follow the laws and stay out of the gray area. Don't even go in the gray area because you don't want to be as stupid as I was when I was a kid and make mistakes. But I guess I want to end off and ask you a tough question. And I know you've been saying that everything is a tough question and not tough because it's like a gotcha, but it's more tough because I, I don't know the answer to this. And I guess that's okay. You made it. You made a, You made a statement that I've been saving till the end. You made a statement in the beginning of the episode. You said money is owned by government, right? And that's an interesting quote, right? Now, if you were just a regulator that I was talking to, I would, I would say, okay, like that's your opinion. But you've been working in crypto now for a few years, not a few years, for, for, for many years, since 2014. So five years, you know, six years. So the question I have for you is now having had spent significant time in, you know, in both camps. Um, and this is one of those questions where please, if you can answer for America and also answer for the rest of the world. Um, a lot of governments and what I mean and I'm talking about, you know, you talk about Africa, you talk about, um, you know, dictatorships, you talk, I'm talking about places where we don't have a multicultural society, multi-democratic society, places where we don't have those. Do you think that it's a divine right for governments to mandate and control money? Or shouldn't it be up to the voters to say, not only am I electing you, but I'm also not happy or happy with how you're doing money. And maybe I think that Bitcoin could do a better job at that. Do you think that could ever be a scenario that could play out? It will play out, but uh, I have a little tweak on, uh, on this. I, I actually am in the camp that government should still control, own, have the divine authority, like you said, of money. Of their money, though. Uh, so it's the U.S. Yes, money. of their yeah. money. That's of a very important statement. I, I fully agree. Yes. And I, you know, I'm a citizen of the U.S. I, uh, I have dollars and I enjoy the benefits of what a dollar, stable dollar can and does uh, do in our society. But we need to let them have the divine authority to control that U.S. dollar. I think what's going to happen is that eventually Bitcoin will become a, an alternative money and hopefully it'll be ubiquitous uh, in a country likely outside of America first. And so maybe we can keep our eyes open and we'll see a country maybe adopted and it'll be not a novel fad. That oh, country ABC has now adopted it. No, no, no. It has to be used, and it has to be a viable alternative. And so, I don't know how that's going to happen. It's going to require innovative politicians, businessmen, uh, society. But I think it will happen. 
And then I think that's going to set a bigger snowballing effect and you'll get the medium-sized countries to be able to uh, use it. And to be honest, because governments will control their money, I think it's going to be society that actually enables and uh, promotes the use of Bitcoin. So it's kind of like, you know, why does uh, cacao uh, talk? Uh, why did it get so popular? It wasn't because of governments backing it. It was because of people. It was because of businesses. It was because of uh, innovators that created it. And it, it became so popular. So I feel like that's where we are. The ecosystem has entrepreneurs. It's going to come and build a better, deeper ecosystem. And that's how crypto is going to take off. That's how Bitcoin is going to take off and become mainstream. And it's going to, first of all, ride parallel to the yen, euro, dollar, and become an alternative to that. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not in the camp of uh, Bitcoin is going to take over and the yen is going to be worthless camp. Uh, to me, Amen. You know, I agree with you. And I think that a lot that over the years, the past years and over the next years, more people will agree with you. And I think that a huge majority, I think a majority of people agree with you. And it's funny that I'm talking to someone who worked at the Federal Federal Reserve. But I think that the you know, if I, if I had to put it into a, into a sentence, I think that the common understanding now that, but it used to not be. It used to be different. It used to be end the Fed. You've probably heard this before, right? It used to be end the Fed, end the Federal Reserve. But now I think it's like transcend. I think it's, hey, let's build a better system. We voluntarily will let people use our system. And the the super good benefit is it'll force the other systems, you know, the Federal Reserve and our current financial system to become better as well, because now they have to compete. And I think we're seeing that, Tim. I think we saw that with the ACH system very recently coming out and saying, okay, now we see people want instant payments. Eventually, in like three years, we're going to have instant transfers from bank account to bank account in the U.S. That's right. Now, it's, um, you know, it's going to be an alternative uh, the yen, euro, dollar, I think, are going to still be around. Uh, you know, mass uh, populations will use it, but also uh, we'll see mass usage of Bitcoin, and it'll be an alternative. And I think uh, because we are in the kind of mobile internet um, uh, world, and it's becoming more electronified, digitized. Uh, I think it's a perfect landscape for uh, Bitcoin and the crypto ecosystem. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I really appreciate it. How can our listeners follow what you are up to? How can they follow what the company is up to and continue the conversation? Please simply follow OKCoin.com. We're on uh, Twitter, Facebook, um, uh, and I'll hopefully uh, meet you in person. Uh, throughout the ecosystem conferences and get-togethers, meetups. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show and I look forward to meeting you soon. All right. Thank you, Charlie. Hey, everyone. Hey, everyone. This is Charlie Shrem and you're listening to Untold Stories. As an investor, Pascal Gauthier, the CEO of Ledger, one of the most well-known hardware wallets and companies in our industry, you know, 
one of the first companies to make crypto hardware wallets. He says one thing when companies and different projects come in front of him. He asks, who's your competition? If you don't have any competition, that can mean that you're either onto something huge, like something else that no one has thought of yet, or it could also mean that you're banging your head against the wall, maybe literally. Pascal and I spent the day talking about Ledger and we talked about what he looks at on different companies and projects that are transforming the industry and igniting a revolution. As CEO and one of the first investors of Ledger, he is like in the perfect position to take the company forward. We talked about the origins of Ledger and how they revolutionized how they revolutionized Bitcoin wallets, making a transformational leap from USB sticks, which were something that everyone used back then, to the hardware wallet as we know it today. We discussed in depth the French technology of Ledger and why he thinks France has some of the best developers in the world. Pascal shows optimism for the future of crypto and Bitcoin and emphasizes that they're in it for the long run. The early players of crypto, Pascal and myself included, we believe that there's a long road ahead and we discuss the idea of making the world a better place to live in with Bitcoin, with crypto, with Ledger, and with all of us working together. I can't wait to share this episode with you guys and I'll talk to you right after the ads. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.